If you have your Bibles, you can begin opening to the New Testament book of Acts. We are headed to Acts chapter 12 this morning as we continue this year to walk through this New Testament story of the early church in a series that I have entitled, The Power to Change the World. Acts chapter 12, you may or may not be aware, is sort of the end of the first of really two major sections of the book of Acts. Here, thus far from Acts 1 to Acts chapter 12, uh, we've seen the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the powerful working of the gospel, primarily in the Jerusalem church and primarily through uh, the human uh, aspect, through the apostle Peter. We've seen faith grow, not just in the city of Jerusalem, but to its greater region of Judea. We've seen the gospel spread outward to Samaria and Samaritans. And then last week, we saw it finally explode onto the scene into the Gentile world, marking the reality that Jesus promises in the gospels and in Acts chapter 1-8 that the gospel would go to the entire Gentile world. But before we leave here this first section of Acts, God is going to speak here through the pen of the author of Acts, Luke, and will remind particularly the Jews at that time there in Jerusalem that God has not done with them. He has not forgotten them. And though they face a very real persecution, that God is going to continue to be with them and care for them. Uh, Acts chapter 12 has three very unique, somewhat related stories that should really jump off the page in that particularly the third one is particularly shocking. First, we will see the apostle James is killed by King Herod. Then we're going to see the apostle Peter, who is miraculously freed from prison, Herod's prison. And then third and finally, we're going to see God judge and actually strike down this wicked, evil ruler, King Herod. Um, its application for us today as believers is extremely apparent as we as believers inevitably suffer in this life, face persecution, face attack for following Jesus and seeking to share and speak about the good news of the gospel. And that in reality, all of us on our own, we lack the power to be able to eliminate this sort of oppression, whether it be er earthly or ultimately our oppression and chains to sin. And we're going to see God's power yet again on display. So let's read together. We're going to read Acts chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 24 all at once here at the beginning this morning. Read along with me. I'll be reading the English Standard Version. The Word of God says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here's our second story. Verse six, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Third story. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, called, and, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Thus far, the reading of God's word, including the worms. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy and inerrant word. Lord, we submit ourselves to it this morning, and we are grateful that in it is contained your truth, the life the hope that is in Jesus Christ, salvation in him alone. And so we look to you this morning, Lord. Would you be merciful as you pour out your grace to us this morning? Father, draw our hearts near to you. Encourage us where we may be struggling. Remind us that you are good and that you alone are on the throne. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Three realities that we see this morning in this passage, three realities for trusting God when it feels like or it appears that evil is triumphing here on earth. Three realities. The first we see in this first little story, verses one through five, the reality of believers suffering at the hands of evil people. You may or may not know this, but in the New Testament, there are actually five different Herods that show up from the gospels to where we are now, and they are all a part of the same horrifically dysfunctional family. The first was the original gangster, Herod the Great, who commanded his soldiers to murder all the babies in Bethlehem. I'm sure you remember that story at Jesus' birth. He also, nice guy, murdered his first wife and their son, Aristobulus. Second, there was Herod the Great's son, Herod Archelaus, who was so bad that even Rome recognized how bad he was and they removed him from power. Third, there was another son of Herod the Great named Herod Antipas. 
He is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of his sister-in-law, also named Herodias, because, oh, by the way, on the side, they were also having an affair, and John the Baptist called out their sin. Uh, Herod Antipas is the same Herod that also dressed Jesus in a royal robe to mock him during his trial. Here we have in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I, whose grandfather was Herod the Great and who murdered his dad. Herod Agrippa was remembered as a royal playboy in his early days before having to flee Israel because of his mounting debts in the country. Uh, But when his friends Caligula and Claudius each became Caesar, they gifted him his role as the puppet king of Palestine. Herod Agrippa was a politician in the worst sense. I don't know if there's a good sense, but he is a politician in the worst sense, and he used Jewish religion only however and whenever it would benefit him personally the most. Fifth and finally, his son, Herod Agrippa II, we will see at the very end of Acts, in Acts 25 and 26, where he is present at the trial of Paul. So here, this man, Herod Agrippa I, he, we are told, has James the Apostle beheaded to please the Jews to benefit his popularity and his control over the people, and he did it by execution, by by beheading, which was reserved only for murderers and apostates, of which James was certainly neither of those things. This is James, the brother of John, of Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that were Jesus' innermost circle of discipleship during Jesus' earthly ministry. He is the brother of John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. John himself Uh, under attack by another government, was put into boiling oil, survived that, and then was ultimately exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. This reminds us immediately that no one is immune from suffering for following Jesus Christ here on earth in our broken world. And Christian suffering under corrupt people in power in the world is also nothing new. We see Peter, who is also arrested and was scheduled to be executed. However, not wanting to ruffle any sort of religious feathers, it is not because he wants to honor the the spiritual aspects of Passover. Herod chooses to wait until Passover is over, and then he will most certainly have Peter executed as well. You can imagine the terror if you put yourself into that situation, knowing that your pastor has just been executed or that your pastor is in jail awaiting being executed. This is their reality. Certainly, we still have evil people in power today, and persecution is a a part of life on earth for all believers. Some persecution will come from those in power, political and earthly power. Some persecution will come from those who have no political earthly power at all. It is important for us to remember in our own immediate present day Uh, Long before Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, and Ukraine is comparable to Antioch as sort of a modern-day church planting center there in that part of Europe, there was long ago a Marxist communist Soviet Union for well over 40 years that persecuted and systemically killed Christians for being Christians. Hatred of the gospel is real today as well. And persecution is Evil, injustices of various kinds are all a part of life here on on earth. (laughs) And our hope is always and only in Jesus Christ, in his kingship, in his power, and his promise to be with us here in the here and now and to take us home to be with him one day in a very real place called heaven.
John chapter 15 and chapter 16 speak to this uh, an incredibly profound way. If you struggle, I point you towards the words of Jesus in those two chapters. Jesus summarizes all of his teaching in John 16, when he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, we live in what is called the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already conquered sin, Satan, and death. Jesus has already won, but he has not yet returned to express final judgment here on the earth and to take his people home. And so we live in his victory, and yet at the same time, we look forward to his consummation and his return. God, in this interim time, the already and the not yet, has not promised to make our life pain-free. Rather, we are told that God uses our suffering for our good, for his glory, and for the advancement of his gospel mission here on earth. And for us who follow Christ, there will be times when you will go through suffering of one sort or another, and you'll be able to look back days, months, years later and go, now I see what God was doing. I see his, his plan unfolding in ways that he did something that in the moment I didn't like it, but I'm grateful for what he's done. There will also be times that, that years later you will go back and you will still say, I don't understand what the Lord was doing there, but I still trust him. I still believe that he is good. I still believe that he is faithful and that he is sovereign. And I believe the promises that Romans 8 has given me that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Acts teaches us further over and over and over again that we've seen already to, to take joy in suffering for the name of Jesus. Not just that we tolerate it, not that we just push through or sort of push it down, suppress it, but to take joy in suffering for the name of Jesus. Listen to a, a story that we looked at several weeks earlier, Acts chapter five, the punchline here in verses 40 through 42. And when they, this is the Sanhedrin, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, this is the apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These guys got beaten and their response is to rejoice because Jesus and his grace and his mission here on earth was so central to their lives. And their follow-up, by the way, think about it. What do they do after they are beaten, after they, they rejoice that they are a part of God's mission here on earth? They don't follow up by isolating in a bunker. Uh, they don't follow up by reading end times prediction blogs. They don't follow up by ceasing to outreach. Their follow-up is to trust in the love of God. Their follow-up is to stand firm in their faith and trust in Jesus. Their follow-up is to keep preaching about Jesus even as they suffered at the hands of evil people. Second story, second application that we take from God's word this morning, the reality number two of deliverance by the power of our good and faithful God. And this is verses six through 19, the largest portion of our passage this morning. Verse six says that it was, earthly speaking, it's the last minute. It is the last second. It is the night before Peter was supposed to be executed. 
God's timing is not your timing. God's timing is not our timing. We say, God, I want it now. I want it immediately. I want it in this way, this, this size, this shape. God says, trust me. Are you willing to trust him in his timing, his way, patiently, even when it doesn't feel, it may have felt like hope was gone. The Bible says that there were uh, four Roman squads. We know from history that a squad of Roman soldiers was four. So there were 16 soldiers assigned to guard one guy who's already in prison. And further, they have wedged him between two guards and two chains are applied to him. So he is shackled to each of these guys to make triple sure that he does not get away. These details remind us, if nothing else, that we are powerless on our own, that our hope is in our miraculous, grace-filled, powerful God. There was nothing, earthly speaking, that he or any other believer could do except one thing. The Bible calls it earnest prayer. Verse five, earnest prayer. Now, if we step back for a second, nothing looks more ridiculous to the world than Christians in the face of of a crisis who say, I am going to pray. I am going to ask God for help. Nothing looks more powerless for this ragtag bunch of Christians to do than to say, I am going to pray. But the reality is, is nothing is more powerful than to call upon God in prayer to address specifically the problem of evil in their little corner of the world. Notice that their response to a crisis, to persecution, to injustice, their response is not to post on social media. I understand they didn't have it at the time, but I guarantee you it would have been a temptation to go on Jewish Facebook and just post a rant. Their hope was not placed in a political candidate. Their hope was not in telling lost people how to do legalistic moral improvement. No, and also their hope was not in calling on their local celebrity pastor to name it and claim it on their behalf. Their hope was to pray and trust God with the results. Trust God with the results. See the the reality here again that ragtag, persecuted, bullied Christians possess more real power than Herod and his soldiers and the entire Roman kingdom. Because the world's evil is no match for the power of our God. Here we see in the story, the angel of the Lord shows up. Light enters what was otherwise a dark cell. The angel of the Lord has to actually push Peter to wake him up, which is an interesting detail. Would you be sleeping if it was the night before your execution? I would imagine for myself, probably not. Why is he sleeping? The scripture does not say this explicitly, but I would suggest to you that one of the reasons perhaps he is sleeping is because he is resting, literally, not figuratively, he is resting in God's promises. That whether the Lord chooses to release him from this earthly situation or not, he knows whose he is and he knows where he will be. And so he can rest, like you and I, even in the worst of earthly circumstances. But here in this moment, Peter's chains fall off. It is a miracle. The prison gate opens automatically. It is a miracle. And Peter walked out of that hopeless prison by following the angel of the Lord. Make no mistake, God saved Peter. 
But do not miss the greater picture, the reality that we get placed in front of us, that Peter's situation in that prison mirrors for us in a beautiful way the reality of what the Lord does in salvation every time that he saves a dead, hopeless sinner and brings them to faith and new life in Jesus. This is the extraordinary and everyday power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the reality for all of us spiritually is that we are all imprisoned, chained by our sin. Our sin is so bad that our sin, we could say, is a cell door that is locked from the inside. Our hearts are actively in rebellion towards the Lord. Consider a different way. We are asleep to the total depravity of our own sin until the Holy Spirit breaks our chains and sets us free, wakes us up. It is all an act of his goodness and his grace, and I can claim none of it. It's not my ability. It's not my righteousness that I bring before the Lord. It is God's grace. Charles Wesley, in an incredibly famous hymn, uh, And Can It Be, writes these words, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you never have, let today be the day that you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the exact same way. A simple prayer is reflected for us here. Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I am chained to my guilt and my sin. I need you to set me free. Save me. And Jesus will answer that prayer every single time. Yes. And Peter here in our story, Peter, having been freed miraculously, goes and knocks on Mary's door. Think about this. While everyone else in town is asleep, believers are still gathered together, unified in prayer. Calling upon God, it is the zero hour. Circumstances look bleak, they look awful, it feels hopeless, but they are praying. Rhoda, who is a servant girl in the home, answers the door. She sees Peter and she is so excited that she leaves Peter out in the cold, out in the street, and runs back inside and tells the prayer meeting that she has just seen Peter. And they don't believe her. Their response is essentially, can you not see that we are praying right now? Do not interrupt us. We're asking for God to do powerful things. Meanwhile, Peter is literally still outside knocking while they are inside having a theological debate about what it is that Rhoda has just seen. Believers do not miss the reality here. So many of us today are like the believers there in that moment that we, we don't really actually believe that God answers prayer. Whether it be, like we said a few weeks ago, the miraculous or the mundane, we might even go through the motions of prayer, but do we honestly believe that God is good, that God is sovereign, that he hears, he pays attention to, and he answers our prayers? Their faith is going to grow, and I think our faith is going to grow from the story as well. James 4.2 has an interesting statement. James 4.2 says, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. I don't think that the Bible here is talking about Ferraris. I think that the Bible here is talking about faith, but it says you have not because you ask not. Do we believe that God can and will answer our prayers? 
See, God is absolutely sovereign, and yet he still calls on us to pray. He has chosen to use our prayers as a means by which he executes his perfect will. So do we, are we drawn, given a fresh desire here to pray earnestly like the Bible says? And I wonder how much more we might pray if we genuinely believe that God answers our prayers perfectly. I think if we really believe that, we would start praying about everything. Kids going to school in the morning, Lord Jesus, please don't let me get peanut butter and jelly again this morning. You would pray about everything because you would recognize that God cares about and knows every single detail. If he knows every single hair on our head, then he knows what we need. We call upon him in prayer and he will take care of us. And the beauty of it is he doesn't answer according to our whims or our confusion. He answers according to his goodness and mercy. Peter clearly learned this lesson from this and probably other experiences in his life. First Peter chapter five, he writes this to the believers in verses six and seven. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. How profound is that lesson right there? Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, we say whether our circumstances are temporary or permanent, whether the Lord chooses to save us from this earthly situation or not, we will not stop talking about him. We will not stop praising him and our trust in him will not be broken because we know that we will be home with Jesus. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. Third and finally, our our final passage here, this is verses 20 through 24, is the reality of God's justice for evil the reality of God's justice for evil. Herod's justice from God was deserved. And just in case your heart is starting to sort of feel some sympathy for Herod, ah, he's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal, give him a second chance. What does Herod do? Well, he has the 16 soldiers that were guarding Peter executed for failing at their mission. Relatively speaking, he has now killed 16 more innocent people. And then the story continues on that he is now dealing at a different scene, different moment. We see his cruelty in dealing with the foreign nations of Tyre and Sidon and essentially begrudging them the food that they have always given to these particular people in this nation. I don't want to give you food. I know you can only get it from me. It's gross. That is the reality of of sin. Then when he relents, the people essentially praise him as a god and he doesn't correct them. That's what he's after all along. Oh, I kind of like it that they think I'm God or, or God-like. And he, he rolls with that. And then the Bible says that Herod was eaten by worms. Hmm. Not he died. No, and then his body was later, years later, eaten up by worms. No, 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 no. Eaten by worms, then he breathed his last lest you think that God's judgment here is not in some way miraculous in addition to his mercy that we've already seen. This is not the kind of miracle I'm looking for, by the way. God's gonna do a miracle. I'd prefer it not involve worms at all. But what we are told specifically in the text is that the angel of the Lord struck him down. God is taking this guy out directly. 
The story doesn't quite make it into the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, City kids are not doing Acts 12, 20 through 24 this morning. It doesn't mean it's not true. Every word of God is flawless. I don't understand exactly what that would have looked like, but I believe what it says. And it fills me with uh, thoughts about God's judgment and justice that we ought to consider. Uh, To give you another line of perspective, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, wrote uh, all kinds of things about uh, things happening in this era of New Testament biblical history. Josephus records many of the things that we see in Scripture. Now, Scripture is inspired. Josephus is not in any way. But this is what Josephus, the first century historian, says specifically about this event. Says the king did not rebuke them, speaking of Herod, uh, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. Uh, He felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once. He endured the pain for five days before departing. Actually matches up very nicely. If we go back to Herod's interaction, though, with, with Tyre and Sidon, we see not just Herod's heart, right? We see a little bit of our own hearts as well. Herod puts on his outwardly beautiful robes to make himself look good. Herod sits on his own little throne that he has created for himself. Herod talks a good talk. Herod enjoys the crowd referring to him as a god. Well, what is sin in our own hearts? What is the nature of sin in the heart of every single person? Well, it's denying our sinfulness by faking it with external things. It's saying, I am on the throne of my life, and I don't want you, Jesus, to tell me what to do. I tell me what to do. It's the hypocrisy of our words that don't always match our actions. It's glorifying ourselves and taking the glory that ought to only go to the Lord Jesus and trying to seek man's praise for myself. See, outside of Christ, we stand, all of us, before a holy and a righteous God, guilty, just like Herod. We love justice. We love justice when it's for someone else. When it's for me, I don't love justice quite as much. When I'm the guilty party in need of God's mercy, see, God's righteousness is real. God's justice is real. And the reality is God's justice is a comfort to those who are in Christ, who have experienced God's forgiveness for their own sins, but are struggling under earthly injustices. We find comfort in God's justice. So if you are grieved by what you see happening in a a place like Ukraine, find comfort in God's justice. If you are grieved by persecution that happens to believers every day around the world, find comfort in God's justice. If you personally are experiencing suffering for following Christ in some way, find comfort in God's justice. He will bring justice in his time. But it ought to also drive all of us to mercy because God's justice is a terror for anyone who is outside of Christ, who faces still the eternal wrath of a just God. See, God is holy and is just, and he must and will punish sin. But God is also merciful and has made a way for everyone to be free. What did he do? He sent Jesus to die the death that you and I deserve. 
He sent Jesus to be shackled, to take on the very shackles that you and I own. He sent Jesus to suffer and die and be punished by his wrath for our sins. What do I have to do to receive this free gift? There's nothing that you can do except ask. God, trade my sin and my wickedness for Jesus' holiness and righteous, perfect life. Forgive me of my sins. Change my heart. Enable me to repent and turn from this wickedness and follow you each day. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And if you're a believer this morning, will you reach out to those around you who have not heard this message yet and who still stand unready for a holy and just God? The Bible ends here in verse 24 by saying this, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Here's the bottom line. Herod dies, but the gospel lives on. Evil is defeated and God's mission of gospel mercy triumphs. Think about it. Acts chapter 12, it opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, James in heaven, Peter free, and the word of God victorious. Verse 25 tells us that Barnabas and Paul are on the move as missionaries to the Gentile world. And it ushers us into the second half of the book of Acts. Believer, trust God's goodness. Trust his mercy. Trust his justice. Even when it appears that evil is triumphing here on earth, Jesus has already won. Amen? Let's pray together.